Once David is dissuaded from destroying Nabal and his house, Abigail is liberated from her marital bondage by God to become the wife of the future king of Israel. This is the 53rd sermon in the series Dynasty, Lordship and Authority, an exposition on the first book of Samuel. Our old covenant reading coming from Samuel and chapter 25, Samuel and chapter 25, beginning in verse 32 through the end of the chapter, verse 44. Beloved of the Lord, this is the word of God unto us this morning, for Samuel 25, 32, through the end of the chapter. By inspiration of God, the prophet writes, And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, which sent thee this day to meet me. And blessed be thy advice, and blessed be thou, which hast kept me this day from coming to shed blood, and from avenging myself with mine own hand. For in very deed, as the Lord God of Israel liveth, which hath kept me back from hurting thee, except thou hast hasted and come to meet me. Surely there had not been left unto Nabal by the morning light any that pisseth against the wall. So David received of her hand that which she had brought him, and said unto her, Go up in peace to thine house. See, I have hearkened to thy voice, and have accepted thy person." And Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he held a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunken. Wherefore, she told him nothing, less or more, until the morning light. It came to pass in the morning, when the wine was gone out of Nabal, and his wife had told him these things, that his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. It came to pass about ten days after, that the Lord smote Nabal, that he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord that had pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal, and hath kept his servant from evil. For the Lord had returned the wickedness of Nabal upon his own head. And David sent and communed with Abigail to take her to him to wife. And when the servants of David were come to Abigail to Carmel, they spake unto her, saying, David sent us unto thee to take thee to him to wife. And she arose and bowed herself on her face to the earth and said, Behold, let thine handmaid be a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. And Abigail hasted and rose and rode upon an ass with five damsels of hers that went after her. And she went after the messengers of David and became his wife. And David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel, and they were also both of them his wives. But Saul had given Michal, his daughter, David's wife, to Fati, the son of Laish, which was of Gilam. The Apostle Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, Ephesians in chapter 5, by the same spirit, the Apostle Paul, beginning in verse 21, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Wives, Submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of the water of the word that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot, or wrinkle, or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. 
He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. Thus far as the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever, and by his holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day. Now by Abigail's wisdom, David is spared from bringing upon himself the blood guilt of Nabal. Without any doubt, Nabal was not only a wicked man of tremendous pride and arrogance, he was a follower of Saul, a supporter of the king of Israel, the wicked king, the tyrant king Saul. And this made him much more of an adversary to David, of whom he obviously despised. Now, after securing Nabal's possessions and protecting his servants, David asks, and he asks quite politely, very honorably, giving Nabal the utmost of respect to partake of Nabal's provisions in return for David's security of his sheep and his goats and his servants. But instead of ministering out of the abundance of his wealth, Nabal not only flatly refuses David, but insults him as a rebel and a lowlife of an impoverished family. Knowing that he had followed Saul, now he's saying, oh, you left your master and obviously you're of an impoverished family and I have despised you to your face. You will not have any of my provisions. So he insults David. And in response to this insult, David is furious. David furiously vows to kill everyone without any hesitation, to kill everyone in Nabal's household as a payment, as vengeance for his insult. Now, while Nabal, of course, deserved David's wrath, Nabal's servants did nothing to warrant David's slaughter. If David's intentions to kill every male under Nabal's protection and servitude were not checked, his action, the future king of Israel's action, would have been very detrimental to his cause and a blight upon his character, as well as his, his kingdom that would come to him in the future. It would also follow him throughout that reign. It would follow him throughout the reign of his entire kingdom, as a man not of mercy and wisdom, but as a man of wrath and tyranny, like, like Saul. And this was the kind of king that would be seen as having no mercy whatsoever. And that was not what God wanted for David. Clearly, if David's wrath was not checked, he would go ahead and kill everyone in Nabal's house and he would then be guilty of vengeance and wrath and, and murder. Hearing of David's intentions by one of Nabal's servants, Abigail then, of course, in her wisdom, intervenes and David is spared. So here she acts as mediator between David's wrath and the innocent servants. Now, at this point, in a typological fashion, we might see Abigail as either a type of Christ or even as a type of the church intervening for those who deserve wrath but are brought before God and for mercy's sake are spared. Now, if we are going to view Abigail as the personification of wisdom, then she is most certainly a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, since wisdom is personified often as a woman. This does not mean, however, nor does it imply or suggest, nor are we to infer that Christ is female. 
but rather it simply speaks of wisdom as female. And we see this most clearly in Proverbs chapter 8, where wisdom is spoken of as she. And of course, this is speaking of wisdom, of, of Christ and his wisdom. Notice in Proverbs 8 chapter 1. Doth not wisdom cry, and understanding put forth her voice? Solomon continues, She standeth in the top of high places, by the way in the places of the path. She crieth at the gates, at the entrance of the city, at the coming in of the doors. Unto you, O men, I call, and my voice is to the sons of men. So here, wisdom is personified as a woman. Now, consider the wisdom of this particular woman, Abigail, and some of the other God-fearing women in Scripture, such as Sarah, Mary, uh, Martha, the Syrophoenician woman, Lydia, Priscilla. All of these women are showing some form of this wisdom. They were very much uh, in Christ's life. They're very much in the life of the of the Old Testament as women of wisdom. Now, of course, there are women of folly and wretchedness, such as Jezebel and others, but these are ladies of wisdom. In this situation, Abigail's situation, she is outside of David's anger. In other words, she's not the target of his wrath, per se. His vengeance was actually to be enacted upon the males only. Remember the phrase, those who pisseth against the wall, the males who are blaspheming God, who are blaspheming the law of God. And therefore she is able to think more clearly as to the ramifications of David's wrathful action. And this is why I believe this is why women are given to men. They take the edge off. They take the edge off the, of the beast-like qualities of the male species and often, provided their counsel is biblical, and let me underscore that, provided their counsel is biblical and not like the counsel of Jezebel to her husband Ahab, but provided that the wife's counsel, the woman's counsel is biblical and then taken seriously, and those two go together, they help to avoid an action that the husband might take, which could be very detrimental to him. Secondly, Abigail as a woman, according to her nature, and this is why men are different than women, according to God's mercy and his plan, Abigail, according to her nature, is more compassionate. Women are more compassionate. At least they ought to be, generally speaking, Abigail shows a tenderness and a concern toward the servants of her husband's household. She's looking at the big picture, as women usually do. And she's showing a merciful heart. She could have egged David on, so that only she would be free from the entire situation, and said to David, just, just kill Nabal so I can marry you because I'm in a terrible situation here. But she doesn't do that. She looks at the big picture, and her compassion flows outside of herself. She does the exact opposite as a selfish person and acts in a selfless motivation to preserve the lives of Nabal's innocent servants. In fact, she's even at this point preserving the life of Nabal, her wicked husband, as well. This was a an act of selflessness. Her approach and her counsel, thirdly, to David was respectful. She is not commanding David. She is respectful. She even brings gifts to show that her motives are pure. 
while she was humble and meek. Number four, very crafty. Women are very crafty. If you're married to a woman, you know they're very crafty. And she then sets forth a very compelling argument. She reasons with David. Men, have you ever had something in mind where you knew you were right, 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 and nothing was going to dissuade you, and then your wife comes along and says, no, you're wrong, 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 and then she gives you an argument that is so compelling, you realize finally, if you are a humble individual, that you are wrong and she is right. Well, she was very crafty. But she reasons with David. And by approaching the future king, who at this point, notice, he is full of wrath. She shows herself not only cunning, compassionate, merciful, she's quite bold. She's not afraid of the king. She knows this is the right thing to do. But not only does she reason with David, the welfare of the servants, she is also concerned about David. She's also concerned about his integrity as the future king. Now think about this. How our wives are to deal with us men. When your husband is clearly at fault, you are, as was Abigail, called to speak up in order to preserve his integrity before God and man. Biblically, that is why we have our wives. That's why we have our wives, men. They're not just there to cook and clean. They're there because they are our counselors. Provided they're Counsel is biblical. The man who thinks that he doesn't need counsel from his wife is a Nabal. He's a fool. He's not a David who takes the counsel. He's a Nabal who is a fool. Abigail shows women their duty before their husbands and how to execute it. How they are to be exercised in the face of their husband. Whenever we men become wrathful in an unjust fashion and begin to lose our composure, our wives ought to step in to give us a moment of pause in the same way that Abigail stepped in before David to protect him, to give him a moment of pause to protect his integrity before God and man. Now in response, we men ought to seriously consider our wives' counsel and take a step back to reconsider our direction. Often what we will find often to our chagrin, because we're not happy about that, because we men are full of pride, often what we will find is that our wives are correct. We must dial down our initial intentions and seek the counsel of the Lord before we move forward. Even if the wife counsels us to wait, wise counsel. Don't do that just yet. Wait. Always wise. Especially since David learned, I believe, by Abigail... How to wait, as he writes in his Psalms, wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and the Lord will direct your ways. So even if it's just wait until executing that decision, seek the face of God before you go ahead, that in itself is wise counsel. So we must seriously consider their counsel and take a step back and reconsider our direction. Now in this way, Abigail, as I said before, not only a type of Christ, but I believe she also may be a type of the church. Because God's people are to be wise as Abigail was. Not just our wives, but men too. 
We are to be wise as Abigail. We are to be merciful to the innocent, compassionate, concerned about the integrity of Christ and the honor of God, the honor of Christ's name. We are to be able to reason with both God and man in the same way that Abraham sought to reason with God over Sodom and Gomorrah and as we are to reason with the unsaved concerning the need for their redemption. Both David and Abigail knew that their meeting and Abigail's intervention, they both knew that this was a direct providence orchestrated by God. And knowing that, David especially took seriously Abigail's request as it was God, as if it was God himself working through her directly in his behalf and for his good. And that is how we are to view correction and redirection by either our wives, our brethren, our parents, in certain instances even by our children, and even maybe by some strangers who are not even of the Lord, as it was when Shimei rebuked David for being a bloody man. You see, in this instance, David understood that even Shimei's rebuke was of the Lord. It was the Lord that moved Shimei to curse him. Because God is working through others, and David sees the hand of God working through all kinds of people. So when you are approached, corrected, you must look at it as, God is talking to me. God is talking to me by my wife. God is talking to me by my husband. God is talking to me by my pastor. God is talking to me by my child, by the guy down the street, by this thing or that thing or the other thing. I remember many years ago, when the President of the United States, a wicked man that he was, a cunning wicked man that he was, an absolute antichrist that he was, was speaking on television, and my good friend, the God-fearing man whom I love with my whole heart, called me and said, I love to hear a president speak. Like, are you crazy? I just turned the thing off. I want to put a bullet through the TV. He says, oh no, you don't understand. I see God moving the man. He's moving the man in his speech to condemn him with his own words. So whenever men speak, look at it as God speaking to you. and We take out of that what we can. We learn from it because everything is orchestrated by God. And that's what David knew. Note how David responds in the situation with Shimei. He says this in 2 Samuel 16.10, And the king said, What have I to do with you, ye sons of Zeruiah? So let him curse, because the Lord had said unto him, Curse David, who shall say then, Wherefore hast thou done so? And so we do well to see all things as orchestrated directly by the hand of God for our correction, for our safety, and for our maturation. Knowing all of this, David thanks Abigail for her kind intervention. Note also that he acknowledged that it was God. He just says it. God sent you to me. I was ready to do this horrible thing, but God sent you to me. That's a humbling thing. That's a humbling thing when you're ready to do something and God sends you someone that stopped you from doing that horrible thing. You have to bow before God and thank God for that intervention. Notice 1 Samuel 25, 32 and following. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, which sent thee this day to meet me. And blessed be thy advice. And blessed be thou, which hast kept me this day from coming to shed blood and from avenging myself with mine own hand. For in very deed, as the Lord God liveth, 
which hath kept me back from hurting thee, except thou hast hasted and come to meet me. Surely they had not been left unto Nebal. He understood. So David, understanding this, receives of her hand that which she had brought unto him, those gifts, and says unto her, Go up in peace to thine house. See, I have hearkened to thy voice, knowing that it was God working through Abigail, and I have accepted thy person. Notice how he is looking at everything in the world through a theological lens. This thing didn't just happen. Abigail just didn't come to me. God is moving her. God is doing this. You are not in this congregation because you just so happen to be here. God is moving you here at this time, at this place in history. Abigail then goes to Nebal. Now whether he is told that David is not going to destroy his household or not, he knows that David is not destroying the household. And knowing that David is not going to destroy his household, that he's not going to sack his entire house, he believes the wicked, rebellious, obstinate, arrogant, proud man that he was, the cruel Nabal, he believes that he finally got one over on David. The rebellious slave of Saul. So, thinking he gets one over on David, didn't have to give him any of his livestock, David is not going to sack his house. With that realization, Nabal holds a feast. He is going to celebrate. And Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he held a feast in his house, like the feast of a king that he thought that he was. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunken. So he's drinking himself into a stupor. Thinking himself a king, he holds this grand feast for himself and his victory over David's wrath. And yet, Nabal was anything but a king. He was not worthy of any royalty whatsoever. He was a cruel man. He was under the wrath of God, and yet he didn't know it. And yet he's making a feast for himself as a feast of a king. And this is exactly what natural man thinks of himself, that he is a king. I got one over on God, he didn't kill me yet. He's blessed me with all of these things. I have sheep, I have livestock, I have Abigail, I have servants. I am going to make myself a feast because I see myself as a king. And so he fills his life with merriment. He fills his life with feasting to the point where he's drunken, not so much on his wine, which he was historically, but on his own pride and arrogance. Christ gives us a picture of what natural man does as he navigates through life without the fear of God and the judgment that comes after death. Notice what he says in Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 12, 16 and following. And he spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man, we might even put Nabal's name here, brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, because I have no room where to bestow my fruits? Notice, not thanking God for the protection, for the plenteous fruits that he had given. And he says, this will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry, just like Nabal. But God said unto him, 
Thou fool! Remember what Nabal meant. It meant fool. This night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then who shall those things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Do you think that maybe he was calling on the Pharisees to look back to the time of Nabal? You think that he was saying, I'm telling you this proverb so that you would look back to Nabal? Nabal is like this rich man that had these riches, which were, by the way, a direct result of God's providential testing, but was not rich toward God, just like Nabal. You see, beloved, the inheritance that we are called to leave to our children is not to be measured in things Beloved, the inheritance that we are to be giving to our children is not to be measured in monetary riches or things or houses or barns or anything. The inheritance that we are to leave to our children is the knowledge of the kingdom of God, the knowledge of Christ, the knowledge of God. What more can we give our children than that? Because that is everything. That is the world. And yet, what do we find Christian parents doing today? Trying to leave them an inheritance of things. Go to school. Get a good education. Get a good job. Get a good career. Make a lot of money. Retire rich. Without the knowledge of the kingdom of God, we have no inheritance. We have nothing. I think we need to have a reset of our minds as we educate our children as to what is important. The inheritance we are to leave to our children is the knowledge of God and the kingdom of Christ. Now consider further the cunning craftiness of Abigail. Not only is she all of these things that we've already discussed, she's a patient woman. Women are usually more patient than men. Men often have a knee-jerk reaction. They want things done now. And that's a good thing sometimes. But Abigail is very patient. She's careful as to the timing of what she tells Nabal. And so, she waits. She waits until he sobers up in the morning to tell Nabal of everything that had transpired. But it came to pass, verse 37 and 38, but it came to pass in the morning when the wine was gone out of Nabal, now remember that phrase, the wine has gone out of Nabal, and his wife had told him these things, that his heart died within him, and he became as a stone, and it came to pass about ten days after that the Lord, notice the Lord, not David, the Lord, smote Nabal that he died. So Abigail tells Nabal that it was she that moved David to remove his wrath from Nabal's household. It wasn't Nabal. Nabal had nothing to do with David not sacking the house. It was all about Abigail. And after he hears this, that it was all about his wife intervening, a humiliating thing for the proud, obnoxious, obstinate man, Nabal, he turns into a stone. All the while, Nabal might have thought that it was he that David was afraid of, but it was the offering and the mediation of his wife that turned away David's wrath. Hearing this, he turns into a stone, and ten days later, ten days God kills Nabal. God directly kills 
Nebal. And he dies. Vengeance was reserved for God since Nebal's offense was against the Lord's anointed. And this shows us something further, that God will exact judgment upon the wicked whenever they come against the people of God who represent the Lord Christ. But the key is patience. While Nabal turned into a stone, which is symbolic of being under the curse of the law, it took another ten days. A figurative number, a real number, but a figurative number that it must be after the patience of man that God works. We must have patience. And the key here is patience. Note the progression of Nabal's judgment. First he hears the judgment of God and becomes as a stone. He comes under the law's condemnation and finds himself without any strength to do anything further against David or even Abigail for that matter. And while the wine has gone out of Nabal, he is able then to hear of Abigail's dealings with David. Now, there is an old Hebrew pun which likens Nabal to a wineskin. The Hebrews, they speak of Nabal, they speak of Nabal as as a man who is a wineskin. And and the riddle goes something like this, the pun goes something like this, and so when Nabal, the wineskin, was empty of the old wine, he is turned into a stone. Very interesting. Why, why, would that, why would that be? Why, why would they look at Nabal as a, a wineskin? Well, I think we might see a correlation here with Jesus when he gives the parable about the old wineskins. In Mark 2.22, he says this, And no man putteth new wine into old bottles, lest the new wine doth burst the bottles, and the wine is spilled, and the bottles will be marred, but the new wine must be put into new bottles. You see, Nabal was an old bottle. He had old Adam. He was an old Adam. He was a wretched man of pride and arrogance as a result of his being so antagonistic against the future king of Israel who represented the Lord Christ. And the new wine of salvation could not be put into him. And so his judgment was set. And he is destroyed. So when the, and when the wine goes out of Nabal, he is undone. He turns into a stone. Secondly, we see that it took ten days. He is not removed immediately. We have to remember that. We pray and pray and pray in precatory psalms against the tyranny of the wicked. And we want to see God work. But God waits Now, can he remove the wicked immediately? Yes. Why does he not move them? Because he is teaching. Because God is always teaching. What is he teaching? Teaching us to be patient. He's teaching us to trust him. He's teaching us that he has the proper timing for all things. And that he is teaching us that eventually the wicked will be removed. Eventually, eventually. In the same way that the wicked are not always removed immediately, but they are removed eventually. Note how David tells us as much by using the phrase, yet a little while. In other words, not immediately, but in God's time. God's timing. Because God is the God who brings things to pass in his time. Notice Psalm 37.10. For yet a little while, he says. Not immediately. But yet a little while, and the wicked shall not be. Yea, thou shalt diligently consider his place, and it shall not be. In God's time. Well, hearing what Abigail had said, Nabal turns into a stone. God kills him. 
And hearing that, after the ten days, David praises God, thanks God for his great mercy. Notice verse 39. And when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord that hath pleaded the cause of my reproach. Notice, God was pleading his cause. And you think about that. Does God plead the cause of his children? Yes, through the mediation of Christ. He hath pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal, and hath kept his servant from evil. For the Lord hath returned the wickedness of Nabal upon his own head. And this teaches us that God pleads the cause of his people while keeping them from doing evil. And this lesson is a warning for running ahead of God and taking vengeance into our own hands. While we can and must and are commanded to defend ourselves from wicked people, either through military means or or violent means or whatever the means are, we are not to be on a violent offensive. If there is to be any offensive action, it must be gospel-driven, not violence or vengeance-driven. And sometimes that's a hard thing to navigate. When do we know? We wait upon the Lord. And until we know of a certainty, we do nothing. The judgment of Nabal was what's called lex talionis, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. He got what he deserved. The wicked, we must realize this and believe this, the wicked will get everything they deserve. Notice what David says, For the Lord hath returned the wickedness of Nabal upon his own head. Everything that he was, every wickedness that he was, every wicked thing that he was, was turned upon himself and he was destroyed under it. Contemplating this idea, this reality, David writes this in Psalm 9 verse 15, The heathen are sunk down in the pit that they made, and the net which they hid is their own foot taken. That is why my friend loved to listen to the wicked president speak. Because he knew that they were laying a net for themselves. The Reverend Long observes, he says, Through his encounter with Abigail, David learns a very important lesson in God's reliance and non-retaliation. He learns, as the imprecatory Psalms regularly stress, the Yahweh, Yahweh himself, can be trusted to avenge wrongs suffered. God can be trusted. Obviously, taken by Abigail's integrity, wisdom and cunning, her patience, her her compassion, her mercy, and the fact that she was a God-fearing woman, now a widow, David speaks with her about becoming his wife. And David sent to commune with Abigail to take her to him to wife. Now, I guess the question is, why did David want her to be his wife when he already had wives? Why did she, and then why did she agree so readily? Well, there are a number of possibilities. Well, certainly Abigail was now a widow. Her husband was dead. She was now loosed from her husband. Perhaps David felt compelled to take her as a covenant protective head and not leave her without that security. And that is to David's credit. I believe that was part of it. She no longer had a headship. He would be her head. Secondly, we ask, did he love her? Well, perhaps he loved her. Maybe, maybe I, I think he loved her character more. He might have been amazed at her sensitivity to the Lord's dealing and how she was concerned about David's well-being. But I think he loved who she was, not what she looked like. Thirdly, we must ask, was there an economic benefit to David's motive? Well, there certainly was. But I don't think that was the first thing on his mind. 
She, of course, would now be in possession of all of Naboth's wealth, and which is ironic since he didn't want to give David anything, and now he had everything. Fourthly, Abigail, on the other hand, knew that she was now without that headship covering, and that might place her in a very difficult situation. So to marry David, who was the future king of Israel, which she was very well aware of, that would be a tremendous blessing. So, yeah, I'll marry you. No problem there. Would put her in a very incredible position. And, of course, then she agreed almost immediately. Notice her response. And she arose and bowed herself on her face to the earth and said, Behold, let thine handmaid be a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. Now, notice what she's not saying. She's not saying, see, husbands love this verse mostly because they misread it. Oh, she's going to now wash the feet of David. She's going beyond washing the feet of David. She said, I'm going to wash your army's feet too. I'm going to serve everybody. I'm going to go out of my way. And she's going to be a servant to David and his entire household. And of course, husbands really love this verse. You see, you see, Bible teaches that the wives are to bow before their husbands, serve them and whoever they bring into the house, making dinner for all of my friends, all of my buddies, but they fail to include other verses that teach how the husband is to love and care for his wife, honor her, respect her, and listen to her counsel as David listened to Abigail's counsel. They often forget that Eve was taken from the side of Adam as to be equal with him, not from his foot nor from his head, to be his co-labor in the building of the kingdom. And this is why our New Testament reading is from Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands, love your wife, even as Christ has also loved the church and gave himself for her. David is about to give everything that he has, everything that he is, to his wife Abigail. And so whenever the scripture teaches that wives are to submit to their husbands, the implication is as long as the husbands are following the will of God. And when they're not, they need to be reproved. And this is the intent of Paul's counsel to the Colossians. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as it is fit in the Lord. Paul understood that only as it is in the Lord, in what is right. Peter adds this in 1 Peter 3, 7. He says, Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, the knowledge of Scripture, giving honor to the wife as the weaker vessel. Husbands love this verse too. You see, she's the weaker vessel. No, she's the weaker vessel. You're the weak vessel. You're weak, she's weaker. Husbands dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor to the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Abigail then, along with her handmaidens, rides upon a donkey to become David's wife. Now again, the riding on the donkey was not only customary, it was also symbolic. When Christ rode into the holy city, Jerusalem, upon a donkey, upon an ass, he was declaring his judgeship lordship, his judicial lordship position to the world. And it was customary for the judges of Israel to ride on white donkeys while they traveled. Abigail is now riding also on her white donkey. I believe it was white because she is now going to be judge if she is a type of the Christ. So she is here figured as a type of the church who rides upon an ass symbolizing her judgeship in the same way as the elect are judges under the judgeship of the Lord. So we have all of these types and figures pointing to the gospel and, and our place in the world. Note how Christ commands the saints that they are to judge righteous judgments. You hear people say today, well, you know, you shouldn't judge anybody. 
The Bible never says you're not to judge. God never says, do not judge. While we are not to be judgmental or judge with respect of persons, we are to judge according to the law of God. We are to judge righteous judgment. Notice John 7. John 7, 24. Judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgments. 1 Corinthians 6, 2. 1 Corinthians 11, 31. 1 Corinthians 14, 29. Do ye not know that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, are ye unworthy to judge the smallest matters? For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. Let the prophet speak, two or three, and let the others judge. And then, of course, we find that everything we do is a judgment. Verse 43 introduces us to something that we haven't seen before. David also took... Ahanoam of Jezreel, and they were also both of them his wives. So David is married to a woman, most likely because Saul had given Michal to another man. Her name is Ahanoam of Jezreel, and this woman is not to be confused with Saul's wife of the same name. She's someone else. She is also listed first in the list of David's wives in order to show that this was his first wife before taking Abigail and then the others. We see this by the time Saul had given Michal to another man, obviously to distance his legacy from David. This is why Saul did that. He gives Michal to another man, obviously to distance his legacy from David. And it is at this time when David begins his royal dynasty. Now, still not trusting Saul, even though Saul had repented, seemingly, called David my son, even though he was humiliated, David still doesn't trust him. Very cunning, very savvy. He remains on the run, hiding from Saul in the hill of Hakali. And so, we have before us, in this chapter, the death of an era. Remember, we began the chapter with the death of Samuel. and the beginning of a new era, the death of the era of the judges, the beginning of an entirely new chapter, the chapter of the kings, with Saul and David, the future king, who is still not presented as the true king of Israel, but will very shortly. We follow David next to the hill, where David and Saul meet once again for a second time, for a second bout of humiliation, a humiliation of the tyrant king Saul. And this we shall do next when we return to 1 Samuel. Amen.